Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, August 22nd, 2017. Day after the great eclipse, and I am literally bushwhacked. Gonna have to call an audible today. We're gonna start the week off with a light episode. I am literally beat. I'll explain it a little bit in a second here. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles, and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying apparently instead of the Word of God. And over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine put out there is far from biblical. It's, like, not even close. Now, like I've said at the very opening of the program, I am just beat. I'll explain, I'll give more details on tomorrow's episode of Fighting for the Faith, but um, I, we, my wife and I traveled down to, uh, where did we stay? Uh, We stayed in, uh, in Iowa on the other side from Omaha, Council Bluffs, Council Bluffs. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we stayed there uh, not last night, but the night before, in in preparation for getting to see the uh, the, the solar eclipse, and um, the the weather was not complying, and so we had we ended up scrambling uh, to the middle of Missouri in order to see the eclipse, which I was it was amazing. It was absolutely spectacular. I've never seen a total eclipse before, and that was. Off the chain, it was uh, uh, literally it was a it, it was a moment of glory. I mean, I'm <laughs> no, probably not even making any any sense. But unfortunately, we had to drive all the way home, and we didn't even get home until like three in the morning. And uh, and so I have been literally in a fog the whole day. So I'm calling an audible, and we're going to start the week off with uh, another lecture from my uh, series that we've been I've been working my way through the book of. Uh, 1 Samuel over there at Kongsvinger Lutheran Church, Oslo, Minnesota. And uh, so we'll, we'll, we're going to continue with that today. 
as, uh, it, as I try to recover is the best way I could uh, put it. So uh, I think the last one we played was called Playing Stupid Games. This one is going to be titled Winning Stupid Prizes. Kind of an interesting play on words. Anyway, so uh, that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I will give you a full report on the eclipse and the so-called prophetic significance of the eclipse on tomorrow's episode of Fighting for the Faith. So my apologies uh, for uh, wearing myself out, but uh, (laughs) I have, and so uh, that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Yeah, oh boy. Anyway, so uh, let's get to it. Here's the next installment as I work my way through the book of 1 Samuel. All right, we're going to say a quick prayer. Lord Jesus, again, as we open up your word, we ask that you would send your spirit, open our hearts and our minds, so that we may rightly understand what your word teaches, so that we may believe correctly, so that we may walk according to your will and according to your ways, to the glory of your holy name, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, last week, we are, we're working our way through 1 Samuel chapter 14, and uh, we got partway through the story of Jonathan and Saul and the children of Israel in this encounter with the Philistines. It begins with that great, almost Braveheart-esque story of Jonathan and his armor-bearer taking on the whole army of the Philistines because God had given them into their hands. And it was just epic. I mean, you can almost see the purple face paint and, you know, never mind. But anyway, you get the idea. But while, while that battle was going on that Jonathan began, and with the Lord's help, really, the Lord fighting the battle for them, the Philistines began slaying each other. There was all kinds of confusion in the, um, in the camp of Israel. And King Saul gave a command, which was a rash thing to do, that basically said, any man who eats anything until we're done, that person is going to be under a curse. It makes perfect sense. No, it actually makes no sense at all. Because, you know, being a soldier, even in today's modern world, is quite a physical activity. And your troops, if they are famished, they are not capable of doing well. And so we're going to pick up as the story continues. And we're going to see what happens here. We're going to go at verse 24, 1 Samuel 14, 24. The men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge the peop- <laughs> regarding the people and the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand, dipped it in the honeycomb, and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies 
that they found, for now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. So you'll note here that John, uh, Saul's rashness by laying an oath on the people, this is similar, if you would, to when we as human beings create man-made laws that Christians are bound to obey. I mean, this is kind of a, a good way of thinking about it. So in the time of medieval Catholicism, there were rules that were put into place. Rules such as you cannot eat meat on Friday. That's, that still applies today. And if you know your Roman Catholicism, then you'll know that this has in the past been enforced with what threat? Is it a mortal or a venial sin if you eat meat on Friday? Mortal. It's a mortal sin. If you die with a mortal sin on your heart, do you go to heaven or hell? Not, not, you don't even go to purgatory in their system. You go straight to hell. So there you are eating a whopper. Charbroiled double whopper with cheese and pickles and lettuce and onions and ugh, special sauce. And it's Friday afternoon and you're just, oh, this is the best thing ever. You, you think I like Whoppers, by the way. Um, and so as soon as you leave Burger King, after having enjoyed this Whopper on a Friday, you're walking across 32nd and you get hit by a bus. and You die. doesn't matter that you've had faith in Jesus Christ your entire life. Jesus is going to, you're going to stand before Jesus and he goes, yeah, I see you were baptized. I see you trusted me for the forgiveness of your sins. Whoa, you ate a Whopper five minutes before you died on a Friday. And he says, I never knew you. Lake of fire for you. Does that seem ridiculous? It does, doesn't it? Is there any rule in the Mosaic Covenant that says that if a soldier fights during a battle and then takes a break and has something to eat, that God is going to to curse him? Nope. Totally man-made rule. And so you'll note that we human beings also act very rashly. By invoking, invoking a curse upon the person who ate this food, that now he's, he's literally, you know, in, you know, this curse is invoking death. And for what? What's the principle at stake? What commandment is being broken? So then go, well, maybe it's the fourth commandment, but is it? This was a sin of omission, not a sin of commission on the part of Jonathan. He had no clue that there was such a rule that said, if I eat today, I'm under a curse. No, rule, no concept at all. So we're going to see here that Saul has really kind of plummeted. He's really plummeted as far as his overall character. Not only is he, does he offer sacrifices, which he is not permitted to do within his office, now he's, he's adding to the Torah, he's adding to the law, and basically adding, in a sense, you know, this, these rash, without any thinking whatsoever, man-made rules with the threat of death attached to it. This is nonsense. But that's how our human nature is. Have you ever, I mean, if you've heard stories of people who live in very 
aggressive Muslim countries today? Maybe Pakistan. Are, do they write sane, rational laws as it pertains to Christians? It seems like from day to day, you have no idea what rules are going to be put in place, which ones are going to disappear or whatever. It's like, you know, just from on a day-to-day basis, you just don't know what's coming down the pike. That's the same kind of rationale that's going on here. So, Jonathan dipped the tip of his staff, dipped it in his honeycomb, put it in his mouth. He says, Jonathan says, my father is troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. And see, that's the thing. God replenishes our strength through means, and the means that he has chosen is food. makes perfect sense. So this law that Saul had made on the fly flies in the face of how God replenishes his people normally. So Jonathan says, How much better if the people had eaten freely of the spoil of their enemies that they found, for the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. So now we see that because the soldiers are worn out and fatigued and are, need to have MREs in order to resustain themselves, you know, the battle that could have been even better, more victorious, was less victorious. But it gets worse. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil, took sheep and oxen and calves, and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood, which they're forbidden to do. So this man-made law, this rash command by Saul that is contrary to nature itself, resulted in not only a, you know, a victory that wasn't so great, it resulted in people now sinning against a real command of God, by eating food that has blood still in it, which the Jews of that time were forbidden to do. So then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against Yahweh by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against Yahweh by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to Yahweh. It was the first altar that he built to Yahweh. So then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. So he decides he's going to press the attack. He's going to do a nighttime attack. Now, this is in the days before infrared and the kind of weapon systems that we have today so that people can actually see into the night. So you know, a nighttime attack is kind of a rare thing in the ancient world. And obviously, he's thinking he needs to do this in order to kind of make up for his blunder with his rash, stupid command with the oath attached to it. And so I know, we'll let, every, we'll let all the guys have a little bit of food. They won't get a full night's sleep. We'll let them get a little bit of rest, but we're going we're gonna to surprise the enemy with a nighttime attack. And the priest said, whoa, slow down there, partner. Slow down. We've got we to gotta check to see if God's going to give us the victory. Now, if you know your Mosaic Covenant, that as part of the Mosaic Covenant, the priests had these things that were called the Urim and Thummim. 
You familiar with these terms? The Urim and Thummim, we're not exactly sure how it worked, but it, because God instituted and it was part of the priestly garb, that you can ask the high priest a, a question and it, the question will be going to God. And the Urim and Thummim, based upon how the colors worked with the stones, the answer would come back either yes, no, or no answer at all. Those are the three options. kind of Yes, no, or God ain't talking to you. So they're going to ask God, should we press this attack against the Philistines by night? Should we do this? And they're going to use the Urim and Thummim for the purposes of that. By the way, if you know your Mormon history, uh, Joseph Smith claims to have had the Urim and Thummim. you familiar with this? So the way the, the story goes, the Book of Mormon was written down on golden plates that were hidden, hidden in the hill Cumorah in New York. And um, the angel Moroni helped Joseph Smith find these golden plates, and he found them and ran home with them. Gold plates are pretty tough to run with, but anyway, because they're pretty heavy. But, you know, so he was given a special ability. Apparently, these, the, the Urim and Thummim were like peeper stones, and he put them into his hat, and he claims that he can translate the Reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics, which apparently the Book of Mormon was originally written in, and he would stick his face into the hat, and he can magically see through the hat, and the Reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics would translate into English. And then he would dictate to a person behind a curtain, because the person on the other side of the curtain wasn't allowed to see the actual golden tablets. And so... Does that sound like a tall tale to you? It should. When the, book, when the Mormons talk about the Urim and Thummim, just chalk that up to like the legend of Paul Bunyan. You know, it's, it's, out, it, it's out there. Oh. <laughs> Paul is real. You Minnesotans, you're so silly. Oh, that's funny. Okay. Where do you think the Mexican Hey, Paul. Paul Bunyan. Anyway. So then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night, plunder them until the morning. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. So he used Urim and Thummim and it came back nothing. So Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see this sin has arisen today. So he's detected that a sin has occurred and that this is the reason why God has turned his face from him and is not answering his question. So as, for as Yahweh lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. And Jonathan said, I shall not die and stop calling me surely. No. I just love that joke. He shall surely die. But there was not a man among the people who answered him. And then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side. I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Because they know what happened, right? Therefore Saul said, O Yahweh, God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Yahweh, God of Israel, give Urim. But... If this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thuman. Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan, 
and Jonathan was taken. So God ratted out Jonathan. So then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I'll die. No problem. Go ahead. Kill me. Does that sound like a um, sin worthy of death to you? No. Saul said, God do so to me and more also you shall surely die, Jonathan. What a terrible rule. What a terrible consequence for what? And remember, who started the battle? Jonathan and his armor bearer did, right? So then the people said to Saul, and you can almost hear the anger and the rage, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As Yahweh lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Hadah, Jonathan, so that he did not die. Now, it's important to note here that the fact that they ransomed Jonathan hints at, but not explicitly, so we can't push too hard on it, but it hints at the possibility that there was a substitute that died in Jonathan's place, probably an animal, like a sin sacrifice or something like that. You know, that's how ransoming took place. So there's a real possibility here that even Jonathan had to have a substitute so that he didn't have to die here, but something did. So a, a sacrificial animal of one type or another. And you'll note up above in the t- context, it makes it clear that there was an altar built to the Lord. So kind of fascinating. So then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines. The Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly instruct the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered him. So this little segue right here is kind of like the highlight reel. You know, this is the highlight montage of the mighty things that Saul does. So he did valiantly, Zoba went, what a great name, by the way. And uh, he did valiantly, struck the Amalekites, delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, Malkishua. The names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger, Michal. And the name of Saul's wife, Ahanoam, the daughter of Ahamaaz, and the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Now comes the kind of final plunge. Now you'll remember that when Saul had offered sacrifices, which he was not permitted to do as king, that God had already rejected him as king. Remember that that had already happened. And so in the similar way that there's kind of a multi-step process in Saul's ascent, there's also a little bit of a multi-step process in his descent and his total rejection. So already he has acted in a way that he's not permitted as king of Israel. And God has already rejected him. And now the rejection is going to be complete, if you would, with this next story. And so it's kind of fascinating what Saul doesn't do along the way. 
Repent. That's the interesting thing. So, 1 Samuel 15, Samuel said to Saul, Yahweh sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh Savaoth. Uh, Sava here is, uh, means armies. So, Yahweh of armies. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go, strike Amalek, and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Devote to total destruction. This is an act of judgment. Now it's important to note here that in the Old Testament, things are in type and shadow. In the New Testament, you see the fulfillment. Jesus is prophet, he's priest, he's king. When Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, and he devotes all of the earth to destruction, which office is he really acting in? King. This is his kingly office. So note here that God has given an explicit command, and it's a command of judgment. God has judged these people, and he's decided that their sin has reached the level where he says enough is enough, and to make an example of them as an example of God's judgment against those who persist in sin and unbelief, you, King Saul, are to utterly destroy them, wipe them off the face of the earth. This is God's command. And his instrument for it is King Saul, who technically should be acting in type and shadow to Christ. So he's going to fall way short, though. Way short. So we read. So Saul summoned the people, numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah, as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Whoops. Not supposed to do that. And he devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatted calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Was that what God said to do? Nope. So we got a problem here. So the word of Yahweh came to Samuel important words here because what's going to follow is not Samuel's opinion. It's going to be God's opinion. God's opinion of Saul and what Saul has done. And we're going to hear kind of fascinating words. God says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. 
That same word for regret, by the way, shows up in Genesis chapter 6. It's Nahum. That same word shows up in Genesis chapter 6 when it says of God that he regretted that he had made man on the earth. You'll note the impact that our sin has on God. And although he knows the end from the beginning, it still grieves him to his core. So God regrets that he made Saul king. He's turned back from following him, not performing his commandments. And Samuel was angry. And he cried to Yahweh all night. Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to Yahweh. I have performed the commandment of Yahweh. Really? So Saul thinks he's done it. So Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? And the lowing of oxen that I hear. He didn't kill him. Uh-huh. Now remember, Samuel has had a conversation with God. So Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. The people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. I know, to sacrifice to Yahweh your God. Yeah, yeah, that's the ticket. Yeah, to sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to sacrifice those good sheep and stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Lying through his teeth. And he's shifting blame. Notice the deflecting. He's confronted with his sin. The buck stops where? At the top. And when confronted with his sin, he says, they, it was them. They passed. They are the ones who did it. They are the ones. Uh huh. And not only that, did he shift blame? He even came up with a pious explanation for their shameful, oh, disobedient behavior. It was because they were going to sacrifice. The rest we have devoted to destruction. Samuel said to Saul, "Stop! Stop!" All right, we're going to pause right there. We're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, balance of today's lecture, our lesson in 1 Samuel. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church.
You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Fools Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam-dunks from the foul line! That's a birdie! The crowd is going wild! When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Pageant are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Paget grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe! He's safe! That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Oi, Captain! We got ourselves a heretic! (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich! (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box? No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) 
is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that the eclipse may not be worth driving until 3 in the morning. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. By visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. We got four of them. <laughs> I don't remember what any of them are, but <laughs> you know, I actually do. The, the lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. Master Gunner at forty nine ninety five a month, and then Quartermaster at ninety nine ninety five a month. This is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to make a one time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box one three three four four, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code five eight two zero eight. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here's the balance of today's lesson on the book of 1 Samuel. Here we go. I will tell you what Yahweh said to me this night. And he said to them, speak. Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Yahweh anointed you king over Israel, and Yahweh sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of Yahweh? Now remember, he just said that Yahweh is the one who talked to him, right? So Samuel's not giving his opinion. He's he's basically revealing to him what the Lord told him. And then he asked the question, why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of Yahweh? I have obeyed the voice of Yahweh, he says. I have gone on the mission in which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, which is not what he was supposed to do. And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, the people, they took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to Yahweh your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has Yahweh as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. And this is one of the more most important sentences in all of scripture verse 23 rebellion is as the sin of divination and the hebrew word for divination 
Hesem, literally you can translate that as witchcraft. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. So note, we have rebellion and presumption. All in Saul. Now, think of Jonathan for a minute. Think back. Was Jonathan presumptuous regarding attacking the Philistines? No, not at all. He was the exact opposite of presumptuous. He did not act unless he had a sure word from God that he knew that God was going to give him the victory. Saul had a clear word from God, and he just stopped listening to it and just presumed a whole bunch of stuff. And in the process, he was rebellious. And so rebellion and iniquity, or rebellion and presumption are like witchcraft and idolatry. And they really are. They really are. And I want you to think about this. In the book of uh, 2 Thessalonians, it talks about in the last days that there will be a great rebellion against God, actually within the church. It's, we call it the great apostasy. You've heard the prophecies regarding the great apostasy. That within the very church itself, the visible church, there would be a flat-out rebellion against God in his own church. And rebellion is like what? Witchcraft. Divination. And I think it's not, not a coincidence that the form in which the apostasy in our days has taken shape Sounds a lot like witchcraft and divination. With word curses and word, just nonsense. Crazy things like this. And oh, the presumption. Presumption of it all. And so, at the very core then, Saul is rebellious and he's presumptuous. And we see it in spades in the two stories that we just read about him. So, God has now spoken his judgment. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. And that's Saul's sin. Presumption is as the iniquity, as iniquity and idolatry. Again, we see this in Saul in spades. Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, he has also rejected you from being king. And is that not always at the heart? A rejection of God's word gets you in all kinds of trouble. All kinds. You think about what happened to the mainline denominations. Where did their rebellion against God start? Because we see it in our day now where you have church bodies, entire church bodies, ordaining impenitent homosexuals and all kinds of nonsense that goes along with it, right? Well, that's where it is today. Where did it all start, though? Go back in time. Where did it start? 19th century. What? Higher criticism. The whole point of higher criticism was what? To attack the authority of Scripture. To deny that it is an inspired book. To make it a, a book just that's basically mere human stories. That doesn't have authority or anything to say that's binding on us in our belief and our actions today. So, where we are now, 
began with a rejection of God's word. In, Paul, in Saul's life, we see it all happening in the course of his brief stint as king at this point. He's rejected the word of the Lord. He's not attentive to it, doesn't believe it, doesn't obey it. And so as a result of this, God has rejected him from being king. And you'd think at this point he might get the picture, right? So Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of Yahweh and your words. If he had stopped there, we would be dealing with a confession. But he doesn't stop there. Because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Who is he blaming? Them. I sinned, but it's their fault. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before Yahweh. What was his sin exactly? That he listened to the people? You see, this is a convoluted confession. What exactly are you supposed to be forgiven for? So Samuel said to Saul, I, um, I will not return with you. You have rejected the word of Yahweh. and Yahweh has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, Yahweh has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then they said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before Yahweh your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. So notice, he wants to put on pretenses for the sake of himself. Isn't that weird? He doesn't want everyone to know what's going on here. So Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. You can almost see him saying that smugly, right? So Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before Yahweh and Gilgal. And everyone said, wow. That's the king's job, not the prophet's job. But I digress. So we see then here that kind of summarizing where we've come to to this point. When we're studying the concept of kingdom, this has been set up in such a way so that we can really contrast the kingdom that men look for, humanity looks for, and the kingdom that God brings. Saul represented everything that we would ever want as sinful human beings in a king. Tall, handsome, rich. And despite the fact at the beginning of his reign, he is given the Holy Spirit and given a new heart, he doesn't attend to the Word of God, continue to believe in it and act on it. He rejects it, and this ultimately has him spiraling out of control. 
spiraling out of control first by offering sacrifices, which he's not permitted to sacrifice, and then by him literally straight up rebelling against God by not devoting to destruction the the Amalekites. And then you also see in there his presumption, his presumption regarding his stupid rule about nobody eating or whatever. And we see all of this in spades in Saul. And here's the sad part. This is what we see in ourselves. And I will even argue we see this in our very leadership in our own country, locally, state, and nationally. And we see it every generation. And so God has said, I'm going to reject you. And God is now going to raise up a king after his own heart. God is going to put a different man on the throne. And he's going to do so in a way that's very fascinating. Because notice, although God has rejected Saul, you're going to note it's going to be a while. A long while before Saul actually dies. And so now we're going to have this awkward thing going on. We're going to have King David, who's going to be the anointed king of Israel, not yet reigning, while there is still the previous king in place. Tell me that's not an awkward situation. And literally King David, for the whole beginning part of his story, is going to be in dire danger from the other king. Can you start to see how this typology is working out here, right? So we're going to have two conflicting kingdoms, but both kingdoms have been established by God. And one is trying desperately to destroy the other. The other is trying desperately to flee the other while not playing by the other's rules. Kind of an interesting motif if you think about it. So something that we have to kind of flesh out as we you know, get into the story. But before we get into David, I think I, I'm going to actually stop there because this is a logical stopping place. And we'll ask if there's any questions thus far regarding the kingdom or anything that we've read in the story of Saul at, up to this point. Yeah, (laughs) that's an interesting application. Hadn't considered that, but um, you'll note that when you really start to tease out this idea of kingdom, and I would even point you to today's gospel text. Isn't it fascinating that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in the field, and Jesus says the field is the world? Isn't that interesting? So in our day, we live in a day when people confuse the left-hand kingdom, this is my left, this is your left, the left-hand kingdom with the right-hand kingdom. And they push the two together. And then over and again, you know, Christians and pastors and leaders spend all their time focusing in on politics and anointing political leaders and things like this nature, which is weird. <laughs> this is really weird. You know, and nowadays, some of the most dubious heretical characters are the ones who have the president's ear, which is, again, just strange, if you ask me. I don't know if that answers your question, but man, you know, yeah. 
<laughs> Did you see the big, uh, there was, a, was it last week or the week before, the photograph of Trump praying with like Rodney Howard Brown and all of these televangelists? And somebody posted on the internet and I said, were they trying to steal his wallet? You know, <laughs> that was my question. But that's a different story altogether. Any other questions as it relates to kingdom? I, it, Janet, I'm going to ask you a question. I mean, we've been kind of working through this now for a few weeks. Is the concept of the kingdom of God any clearer than it was six weeks ago? All right. That's, that's progress. Okay. It's okay. That's progress. That's progress because we, we've only told a portion of the story here at this point. But it's starting to come into... It's, so it's like a Polaroid. We've snapped the photograph and maybe you can see some blurry figures in there. Good. That's where we're supposed to be right, right now, by the way. Similar. Yeah, and so you'll notice this, the two-track theme motif in Scripture all the time. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the earth. And in the, in the, when we were reading in Genesis and in Exodus, how does that then play out? In Exodus, it's Egypt that kind of is the stand-in for the world's way of doing government. Now that we're in Israel, now Saul is the stand-in for the world's government. But after King David and with the decline of the monarchy into idolatry and eventually you know, Nebuchadnezzar coming and sacking Jerusalem, what ends up happening is the motif changes altogether. And now moving forward, Babylon is always that, you know, pictured as that worldly system, if you would. And what's fascinating about that then, it's the Babylon motif that is carried over then into the book of Revelation, right? The big system of the world that opposes the saints and martyrs them is known as Mystery Babylon. Well, now here's the funny thing, okay? Now, they couldn't use Rome, but you know why they couldn't use Rome? And they had to use that code talk? Because if they had named Rome explicitly in the book of Revelation... Oh, they would have gotten in a lot of trouble. So part of the part of the kind of the key to understanding the book of Revelation is that for the reader who's reading it at that time, the time it's written, there's code talk in there to help them bear up under the persecution they're facing by the Romans. Um, but it's obscured in talk about Babylon. Does that make sense? So the and the Roman system is kind of the system now. Moving forward, and if you know the prophecy of Daniel with the big statue, you know, with the you know, head of gold and silver and then bronze and iron and then clay and iron mixed together, right? That, you know, that Rome is typified then in the iron and that the, uh, the kingdoms of the earth prior to the return of Christ are partly clay and partly iron. And so you kind of get the idea here that the Roman system is the one that kind of is enduring, but has kind of become frail and brittle and broken apart, which is kind of where we're at today. You know, all of the, all of the democracies, the Western democracies, are Roman in their approach, in the worldly system, in, the, you know, in their jurisprudence, and even in their worldview. But it's, been, it's really been broken down and is bitter, not bitter, but brittle, and, you know, kind of really, you know what I'm saying? So... Yeah, but in the book of Revelation, Babylon is kind of the stand-in for Rome, which is weird. But we as Christians, 
as we read the book then, we, we see the two tracks and, you know, where Christ distinguishes himself from the world where he says, the rulers of this age lord themselves over others, but not so with you. The greatest among you will be your slave. You see, everything is backwards. It's whatever the, however the world's values are, the, the values of the kingdom of heaven are the exact inverse opposite. The exalted are the greatest in the world system. In the kingdom of God, it's the humble. The servant, the slave, the lowliest. And so yeah, it's yeah, all kind of important stuff. And we're going to see these themes then playing out uh, in the conflict between Saul and David. And you can even begin to see kind of themes of persecution of the church and stuff like that, you know, and this, this pursuing motif, which also shows up in the book of Revelation as well. Yeah. In the world today, we have other religions like the, the, the world elevates. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like Israel Israel, I mean, is, is this other religion kind of put here to come in and punish, you know, like Western Europe now is really being kind of taken over uh-huh. by other groups. You know, I mean, explain this to me. What, what's going on? Why is this happening? Okay, yeah, just hang on a second. Let me ring God real quick. Okay, God? Yeah, got a tough one here. Yeah. <laughs> Let me answer it this way. I cannot give you a definitive answer as to why God has chosen to do what he's doing in the world geopolitically when it comes to something as, as horrifyingly awful as Islam. I just I don't have an answer to it. Is it within the realm of a biblical possibility that in part what we're seeing is God's judgment against uh, Western civilization's rebellion against the word of God? That may actually be possible. And I would have to go to biblical text to say that we've seen God act in this way in the past. Therefore, it is within the realm of possibility that God is judging us for our rejecting of his word and persecuting of his Christians. You do you persist like that and God says, fine, I'm going to give you over to something else. You didn't you didn't like you didn't like me. You ain't going to like Allah. Trust me. So that's within the realm of possibility. Can I say that that's definitively happening? No, I can't. I actually can't. I can say this, that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is, is working all of the stuff that's happening geopolitically um, because there is, no, there is no government on earth that has not been established by Him. So, And sometimes God establishes uh, governments for the judgment of the wickedness of the people in a territory. Sometimes He causes governments to arise that are difficult to deal with for the purpose of humbling them and creating the good soil that's needed for the gospel to grow. So um, I would say this, it's like so way above my pay grade. Um, you know, I'm in sales, you know, he, you know, I'm in sales and marketing, he's in management. So I can't give you a definitive answer on that. But I, I would say we can, we can look at Scripture and see how God has acted in the past and say that this is within the realm of possibility. But I do not rec- recommend buying a sandwich board 
and going and let you know and standing out on the streets of Grand Forks and saying God has sent Islam here to judge us for our sin, repent. That that may not be correct. <laughs> you know, that may not be the right way of looking at it. So Okay, um, there's, there's something in your question that's loaded, and I have to unload it. So the, the, the question was, what happens to all those innocent people over there who have not heard the word? We're going to unpack the word innocent, and we're going to take that one away. We're all born dead in trespasses and sins. None of us are innocent. That's the scary part. As a result of this, all of us are liable to the judgment of God. And salvation comes through the means of grace. Now, we're now touching on the crux the allegorum in the sense that how, how can we understand God as being just when there are people literally in parts of the world that the gospel has not reached and you know, they have not heard. And the reality is this, is that their judgment is not because of their lack of hearing the gospel. Their judgment is because of their active rebellion against God. So we've got to keep those two separate, if you would. And so when it comes to the mystery of of God's sovereignty as to the speed at which the gospel reaches different people groups, again, that's beyond my ability to speculate or give you an answer to. Um, And I would come back to what the Apostle Paul says, and that is in Romans chapter 10, how are they going to hear unless somebody preaches? How are they somebody to preach unless somebody is sent? And so the church has been tasked with the job of making disciples of all nations, which means it's our responsibility to preach the word, raise up disciples, send people out so that the gospel can, can, can reach to the ends of the earth. So that, that's how I would put it. It's not a satisfactory answer, but we have to stay within the limits that we've been given. Does that make sense? So. No, it's, it's the whole situation on earth is quite unsatisfactory it's unsatisfactory within myself so yeah all right any other questions oh good we'll pick this up next week so what'd you think love to get your feedback and i'm gonna go take a nap while it's coming in if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.